All right, so uh, just briefly, uh, if you missed last week, uh, we looked at the history of the conflict between uh, what's going on there in Israel now, uh, and we talked about the, the, par- the, 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 the claims uh, that each of these parties makes to the land, that they each claim uh, this land as their own. And so uh, we saw last week that the conflict dates not really back in time recently, although it does. It dates all the way back to Abraham's two children, uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, the Jewish Israelites are the descendants of Isaac, the child of the promise, uh, while the Palestinian Muslims are descendants of Ishmael, uh, the other son of Isaac. Now, uh, of, I'm sorry, of, of uh, Abraham. And, and so both of these two parties claim divine title to the land, right? They both say that God gave us this land. And that's why they continue to fight over it. So uh, Jews uh, claim that the land is theirs because of God's unconditional promise that he made to Abraham uh, all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, uh, in what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, And to guarantee this promise, God sealed the Abrahamic covenant uh, with Abraham uh, in this way. Remember, all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 8 to 10. Remember, Abraham, he doesn't have children at this point. And he's like, how, Lord, are you going to fulfill this covenant to me of land, seed, and blessings when I am still childless? And so God says to Abraham, uh, go, Abraham, uh, or, or, oh, Lord, how may I know that I may possess it? And so God says to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid them each side opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And then it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And so the flaming torch and the smoking oven, that's God passing through the pieces. And so what I want us to note here first is that this covenant is unconditional. It's an unconditional covenant. God told Abraham to cut the animals into pieces and to arrange them in such a way that there was a path between these animal pieces. And this was the way people back in Abraham's day made covenants with each other. They would sacrifice animals, they would cut them in pieces, and then both the parties to the covenant would recite the terms of the covenant, and then they would walk through the animal pieces as if to say, may this happen to me that I be cut into pieces if I am the one who breaks the terms of this covenant. And so by this mutual pledge, both parties to the covenant were bound. Now, what is so interesting about this covenant that God makes with Abraham is that God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And then as Abraham was in this deep sleep, God, the flaming oven, the smoking, uh, smoking oven and flaming torch, he goes through the pieces alone. Abraham's asleep. He doesn't go through the pieces. He doesn't recite the terms of a covenant. He's asleep. God is himself binding himself only to the terms of this covenant. And so the covenant is unconditional on Abraham. So in other words, it did not depend on something that Abraham either did or did not do. It did not depend on his obedience. God gave the land to Abraham and to his descendants. And so we see that this covenant is unconditional. The next thing we see is the general boundaries of the land that God gave Abraham. God promised to give him the land from the river Euphrates all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. 
And so God gave Abraham a specific piece of land. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given them this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And so this is the specific land, that shaded area, uh, that God gave to Abraham unconditionally. Uh, and in the 4,000 years since the Abrahamic covenant, uh, at least a remnant has occupied that land of Israel unconditionally, uh, without interruption, for 4,000 years. Now, what about the Palestinian Muslims' claims? Well, they claim the land through the testimony of the Quran. Uh, the Quran... Uh, it says that Ishmael, the older son, not Isaac, is the child of the promise. And they say that it was Ishmael who uh, Abraham nearly sacrificed on Mount Moriah before God's inter intervention. Well, the Quran is a much later corruption of the book of Genesis that Moses had written. The Quran was written some 2,000 years after Moses wrote Genesis. And the Bible is very clear that Isaac is the child of the promise. So the Palestinian claims to the land based on the Koran uh, are simply wrong, and they're based on a lie. They're, they're just simply not true. But the Palestinians also claim title to the land based on their continuous, uninterrupted occupation of the land for 1,400 years, since the Muslim conquest in about 600 AD. And we have to lend some credence. We, ha we have to recognize that that claim has some validity. And we can understand why the Palestinians uh, say that they have the right to the land, because they've lived there uh, for a lot of that 1,400 years. They were the vast majority of people uh, who lived in the land, uh, while the Jews were mostly dispersed throughout other parts of the world. And so they believe that Israel stole the land from them. Uh, that's how they feel about that. But we have to remember that God gave this land to the Israelites and to Abraham and to the, to the descendants. God gave Israel that deed 4,000 years ago, not 1,400 years ago, but 4,000 years ago. And even though it's true that the Palestinians have continuously occupied that land for 1,400 years, well, at least a remnant of Israel has occupied the promised land for 4,000 years, predating the Palestinian occupation by some 2,600 years. And so God gave Israel the title deed to the land. And so when we hear uh, from politicians and from students on college campuses uh, that Israel is occupiers, that they are uh, colonialists, uh, that they're trespassers, this is simply not true. This is Israel's land. God gave it to them. Now, we briefly outlined the history of the conflict since 1948, right? 1948 is, is the year of Israel's independence when they were reestablished in the promised land. The same day, May 14, 1948, that Israel was declared to be, or declared themselves to be, an independent nation, well, immediately war broke out. You had Egypt and Sudan to the south, you had Iraq and you had Jordan to the east, you had Libya and Syria to the north, uh, I'm mean, sorry, Lebanon and Syria to the north, all made war with Israel that day. That day, and they were hoping to squash Israel, to snuff it out before it could establish a foothold in the promised land. And to everybody's great shock, except to God's, uh, because God empowered Israel, they defeated all their enemies and somehow even expanded the territory that was supposed to be theirs. 
and in various wars that have, on, have happened since 1948, the Six-Day War of 1967, the Yom Kippur War of 1973, uh, various skirmishes with the Yasser Arafat-led uh, PLO in the 70s and 80s, and uh, with uh, all these uh, uh, fights that they've had with Hamas in the 90s, uh, all the way up to the present day, this war on October 7th, uh, all of this has been happening to Israel uh, since the earliest days. So all that background is a recap from what we covered last week, and, and it leads us to a few questions, which are our outline for today's message. And the questions are, if God is for Israel and promised this land to Israel by unconditional covenant, then why doesn't God allow Israel to live in the land in peace? So that's the first question. The second question is, is this continuous conflict that we see in Israel a sign that God has abandoned Israel, that Israel is no longer his promised and chosen people? And then the third question is, why do we as Americans and Christians continue to support Israel? So let's start with the first one. If God is for Israel and promised this land to Israel by unconditional covenant, why doesn't God allow Israel to live peacefully in the land? Remember when Moses uh, was leading the people into the promised land and he camped on the east side of the promised land, on the east side of the Jordan River, preparing to enter into the promised land, uh, God told Moses, I am reiterating this Abrahamic covenant with you, uh, but in this covenant that I have, have made with Abraham, I've now given you the law and I've given you Deuteronomy specifically chapters 28 to 30. So he renews his promise to give Israel the land. Again, it's the land that extends all the way from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. But in these chapters in Deuteronomy, chapters 28 to 30, God is saying, Israel, you still hold the deed to the land, but your occupation of the land is conditioned on your obedience to the law. The land is yours, but if you obey, you will occupy it. And if you disobey, you will not occupy it. And I wish I had time to read all of Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30. It's long, but I would encourage you to go home today, this afternoon, and read Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 30 and see how God blesses or promises to bless them for obedience and to curse them for disobedience. And so God promises in these chapters, if you disobey me, you will be taken out of this land and thrust into another land. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64. The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and yet there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Now you all know that Israel's history in the land has been characterized by idolatry, disobedience to the law, and God brought the retribution that he promised, right? In 722 BC, God brought the Assyrians from the north and exiled the northern tribes, the 10 northern tribes of Israel, and dispersed those people throughout the lands. In 586 BC, uh, the Babylonians came and they exiled the two southern tribes back to Babylonia, to Babylon. And there they spent 70 years in Babylon working and being uh, ruled over by the Babylonians while a remnant remained in Israel. And, and then 70 years later, God fulfilled his promises to bring uh, Israel back into the promised land. And so he did that under Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, but still, during this time, uh, Israel was not faithful to God. Uh, and then when Jesus came 400, 500 years later, Israel did not believe again. 
Jesus came and they were expecting this conquering king, this military Messiah who was going to reestablish Israel under the greatness that it had when David and Solomon were on the throne. Uh, and so he said, I am your promised Messiah. And, he, and he, he proved it by performing many signs and wonders among them about what he would do and how he was their promised Messiah. And so they wanted somebody to conquer Rome. And Jesus said, I have come to conquer a much larger foe than Rome. I have come to conquer your sin. I have come to conquer your sin problem. And so he said he was the fulfillment of the law. He was the fulfillment of the prophets. And those who believe in him would never perish, but they would have eternal life. And in the days just before Jesus was killed, this is what he said. He wept over the city and he proclaimed, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Well, Jesus' warning about their house being left to them desolate was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans came uh, and they destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, killed thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jews and dispersed the rest. And since then, the majority of Jews living in the land uh, has been dispersed through, and those who have been dispersed throughout the land have continued to reject their Messiah. They have refused to believe in the one whom God has sent. And so they continue to violate this covenant of obedience that God set out for them in Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30. They don't believe in the one whom God has sent to them, and they continue to reject him. Now, there are Jews who are religious Jews, and they continue to wait for their Messiah. They're still waiting for him to come. They're expecting this military Messiah. And how sad it is for these people uh, you know, to look back in retrospect and, and see the one who has so obviously fulfilled all uh, the promises of what the Messiah would do, that they do not receive this one, this promised one. And so there will not be peace in the land of Israel until they receive their Messiah. There's not going to be peace there until they receive their Messiah. So when will that happen? Well, that brings us to the next question. Is this continuous conflict in Israel a sign that God has abandoned Israel? And the short answer to that question is no. God has not abandoned Israel. And there are some people uh, who hold to this theology that is called replacement theology. And so we say the church has not replaced Israel. But there are some in the Christian church who say uh, that, uh, that, that the Christian church has replaced Israel. And now that the Christian church is the recipient of all the blessings that God promised to Israel, that the church receives them now because Israel has rejected its Messiah. And so the church continues to benefit from Israel's rejection. And those folks who hold to this replacement theology believe that God has now abandoned Israel in favor of the church and that God is done with Israel and that the Jews are no longer his chosen people. But if replacement theology is true, my question is particularly, how then can we explain the rebirth of Israel in the promised land in 1948 and its continued existence? When if you look at the map, uh, Israel is like a pinprick compared to an entire vast area of people around it who have wanted at one time or another to wipe Israel off the face of the map. So that's one question. Further, uh, how can a holy God renege on an unconditional promise that he made to Abraham uh, that he would always give him this land. If God will break his promise to Abraham, 
then what's to say that God won't break his promise to us, to, to hold us, to keep us as disciples of Jesus Christ who love him, that he will come and take us to heaven again someday? And then finally, how can we explain the promises of Romans chapters 9 through 11, which talk about God's plan has not failed, even though Israel does not believe, and that there will be a future remnant when God comes and literally fulfills these promises that he made to Abraham. So, so God has a future for Israel. Replacement theology asserts that when, when God talks about Israel in the Bible, he really meant the church. And so Israel becomes a metaphor for the church. But if you interpret the Bible literally, the only conclusion you can come to is that God has a plan for Israel. And so the church was an entirely new creation that happened after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And one day, God will finish his program for the church, and then he will revisit his covenant with Israel after the full number of Gentiles has come in. <clears throat> so we don't hold to replacement theology. We believe that God has a plan for Israel. Romans chapter 11 says that after the full number of Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. Now, we could spend several weeks on the mechanics of this and how this is all going to happen uh, because it would take that long to, to truly do it justice. I only have a half a sermon to cover this. So uh, you all may leave here feeling somewhat shortchanged, uh, but uh, we'll just have to settle for a flyover. That's all we can do today. Uh, but providentially, when we return to the Gospel of Mark in Mark 13, we just happen to be in the part where uh, Jesus talks about the future of Israel. Remember, uh, the, the, the disciples come and say, oh, Lord, look at all these beautiful stones. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one of these will be piled on top of the other uh, and warns them about all the things to come. So we'll spend a little more time on what the prophecy means uh, when we get back into chapter or 13 of Mark. But for now, let's just remember that God does not want anyone to perish and wants all people to come to repentance. And that includes the Jews, especially the Jews, his chosen people. So his promises are eternal and can be trusted. And to be saved, uh, everyone, including Jews, must believe the gospel. We must understand that our sin separates us from a holy God. And even on our best day, we are sinners. And our holy God cannot allow sinners into heaven. And so we have a problem because we sin every day. We have this sin problem. But God solved this problem by sending Jesus, the perfect son, the perfect lamb, to live the life that we could not live. Uh, and then as our substitute, he died in our place. And he says to us, uh, you take my righteousness. I'll take your sin. You believe in me for your salvation and you will be saved. That's the best trade you could ever make. And that is what it means to be saved. And all people, old people, including Jews, have to believe this. Only by repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus can we be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, some Jews believe this and they have saving faith, but most do not. Most do not believe that. Most Jews do not believe in the gospel. Many have not even heard the gospel. But one day, uh, when God has finished his program for the church, when the full number of Gentiles has come in, then God will uh, re receive Israel back into uh, his promise. So let's just look at Romans 11, 25 and 26, and see that, that though Israel does not currently believe in Jesus for salvation, that God is not finished with them. And then we'll look at uh, just a couple verses to talk about what some of the timing around these events may be about how God and when God will save Israel. So Romans 11, chapter 25 and 26. 
Romans 11, verses 25 and 26. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will be unwise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is a, a synonym for Israel. So remember, Paul was writing this letter to a Gentile church in Rome, uh, where there were some Jews, but the church was predominantly Gentile. And so he's warning these Gentile Christians not to be arrogant, not to look down on these uh, Jews or, or, or look at them with contempt, because God had a plan here. This was God's work. He partially hardened Israel for a time to give the Gentiles an opportunity to come in. And so in these verses, we see Paul says that this hardening of Israel, it's mysterious, and it's temporary, and it's purposeful. First, the mystery. What is a mystery? It's not, in a biblical sense, something that is hard to understand. That's not what mystery means. Mystery means something that has, up to that point, not yet been revealed. So what has not yet been revealed up to this point? Paul says the mystery is that God has hardened Jewish hearts for a time, temporarily, in order to give uh, time for him to fulfill his program for the Gentiles. And so this hardening means that God has sovereignly uh, hardened Israel for a time so that they will not believe the gospel in order, in order that the full number of Gentiles can come in. But this hardening is temporary. It's going to happen until God says the full number of Gentiles has come in, and now it's time for Israel uh, to come back into the fold. So Israel as a nation has experienced this partial hardening, right? Most in Israel today do not believe. Uh, some Jews are saved, but nationally, Israel has rejected its Savior. Uh, and that persists even to this day. And so that is the current situation. God's rejection of, of Israel for a time is mysterious in order to allow the number of Gentiles to come in. But again, it's temporary and, uh, for the time period required until the Gentiles has come in. And it's also purposeful. God has done this on purpose. He meant for this to happen, to fulfill his covenant with Israel after he's finished with his program from the Gentiles. And so what we know, uh, if you know people from Israel, many of them have never read the New Testament. Many of them don't even know what the gospel message is. They've never been acquainted with Jesus as we know him. And so one day, though, they will turn en masse and they will receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And this will happen. Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. That is repentance. That's what we see there. Israel will one day weep and mourn over their Messiah, whom they have rejected up until this point. So we've asked ourselves then, uh, is, has God finished with Israel? What is God's plan for Israel? When will God fulfill this covenant with Israel? When will he do that? Um, well, I'll tell you what, it's a lot easier to say that God will fulfill his covenant with Israel than it is to say when God will fulfill his covenant with Israel. Uh, I covered a lot of what I'm about to say uh, when we were back in the book of Daniel and also when we were in the book of Romans. So if you're particularly interested in this, I would encourage you to go back, listen to the sermon in Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 49. Uh, listen to the sermons in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. 
uh, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Uh, also, the sermons on Romans chapter 9 through 11, where we covered this in, in much greater detail. Uh, and there are different ways of interpreting prophecy, and I'll be the first to grant that. But I believe that the Bible teaches that the next thing that will happen on the church calendar, on God's end times calendar, is that Jesus will return to rapture his church. That's the next event. That's the thing that we're all waiting for, the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 describe this rapture of the church. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So when will God fulfill his program with Israel? Well, it starts with the rapture of the church. Uh, God calls those who have believed, his church, and he meets them in the air. He lifts them up, meets them in the air. First, those who have died as believers in Christ, and then those who are living at the time. He comes for his church, and he will take his church to heaven. So that's the first event. The next thing that happens is that that starts, the rapture of the church, is the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period uh, that we read about in the Bible. After the rapture, only unbelievers remain on the earth. All believers are gone. There's nobody here except unbelievers on the earth. And this seven-year tribulation is God's last offer of grace, his last offer of salvation to the unbelieving remnant who is still here after the, the, the rapture happens especially the Jews, his chosen people. Now, the events of Revelation chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, are all God's final testing. They all happen in that seven-year period after the rapture. And the church is not mentioned in those chapters, chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, because the church has been raptured. They're already gone. But in Revelation 7, we read of 144,000 saints whom God has sealed those are Jewish believers who become believers during the tribulation, and they are sealed with God's grace and promise of salvation, and then they go and evangelize the rest. So for the unbelievers who are here during this tribulation period, the question is, will they believe or will they not believe? And the Bible describes this tribulation period as a calamity far greater than anything we've ever seen in the history of mankind. So you know, we've had some bad things, the Holocaust and, and many other things that have happened. doesn't hold a candle to what is going to happen in the tribulation period. That's hard to imagine. But thankfully, we won't be here for it, those who believe. Halfway through that tribulation period, uh, the Antichrist emerges, uh, and he will mercilessly persecute those who believe the gospel during that period of, the of time. And he will execute anyone who will not take the mark of the beast, and he will set himself up as a god to be worshipped. But then, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, God will fulfill Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and Romans 11:26 that we read earlier. Remember, they have looked on whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. And one day, all Israel will be saved. So at that time, Israel will turn nationally in great numbers to its Savior, and then Jesus will come again with his church. So Jesus comes for his church at the rapture. He comes with his church at the second coming, and he will defeat his enemies at the battle of Armageddon, and he will bind the Antichrist for a thousand years. And then Jesus will establish his 1,000-year millennial kingdom on the earth, 
And that is when he will fulfill his promises to Abraham and the Jewish nation that they will live peaceably in all the land. And so all believers, including believing Jews, will live peacefully in the promised land during those thousand years. So when will God fulfill this unconditional covenant to Abraham? Not until after the rapture of the church, not until after the seven-year tribulation. That's when it'll happen. Well, when will that happen? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. The rapture of the church comes without warning. We don't know when the rapture of the church will come. It could happen today. And if it does, that would start the stopwatch toward uh, ticking towards God's final fulfillment of his promises. Now, all this talk of eschatology may or may not be interesting to you. It may not have the least bit of interest to you, or you may be enthralled by all of this stuff. But what relevance does it have to what is happening in Israel today? Is Israel's war with Hamas a sign of the end times? Uh, is it a sign that the rapture is coming soon? Well, as I said, the rapture comes without warning. So I don't know. It could be today, but it might not be even close to today. We don't know. But still, events are happening that might lead us to believe that the rapture is at least on the near horizon, right? Particularly the fact that Israel figures so prominently in prophecy uh, in the end times, and the fact that Israel has been reestablished in the land uh, would be one big signpost to think that, well, perhaps the rapture may be coming soon after Israel was not a nation for some 1900 years. So maybe the rapture is coming soon. But we also have to be careful not to set dates, right? We can't be date setters because every date setter has been wrong, everyone there's ever been. As we will see when we get to Mark chapter 13, Jesus said, be sure no one misleads you, right? And we have had many, many false teachers who say, <clears throat> look, there he is. Look, here's the coming of, of Jesus. Or look, I am Jesus. We've even had that. So uh, Jesus said, many would come in his name. He said there will be wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nations. There will be famines and earthquakes. But these are only the beginning of birth pangs. They're only the beginnings of birth pangs. You women who have endured childbirth, you know the difference between the beginnings of birth pangs and 10 centimeters, right? That's a big difference. Uh, so the, the, you know what, it, what that means when we talk about the difference between the beginning and what it's like uh, at the end. <clears throat> Wars between nations, famines and earthquakes, this has been going on for 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words. They are not the end. They are only the beginning of birth pangs. What's really interesting is that what Mark says in Mark chapter 13, verse 10, he says, the gospel must be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. Then the end will come. So I was listening to a teacher at Stonebriar Community Church recently uh, by the name of Rome Van Dyke, excellent Bible teacher, and he was talking about this conflict between Israel uh, and, uh, and Hamas, this, this present conflict, and its relation to end times. And he said something I'd never really thought of before. He says, you know, we're always looking for some calamitous event and saying, well, oh, that's the, the Holocaust, that's got to be it, or this war with Hamas, that's got to be it. He said, we're always looking for some calamitous event to signal the end of times. And Rome said, it's not some evil event that is going to trigger the end. It's not some evil event that's going to trigger the rapture. The date of Jesus' return is set by God. It's not set by evil men doing evil things, right? It's not based on evil caused by men. The rapture is tied to the preaching of the gospel to the end of the earth. 
And Jesus hasn't come yet. He's not raptured his church yet because the gospel has not been preached to the ends of the earth, at least as how God determines the ends of the earth. And so there are missionaries all over the globe, right? What do you mean the gospel has been preached to the ends of the earth? We have missionaries everywhere. There's the internet, there is uh, satellite TV and other technology. And it's become easier to reach the whole world than it ever has before. But the gospel has not yet been preached to all nations by God's standards. If it had been, then the end will come. Then the rapture will come. So is Hamas's attack a sign of end times? I think that's the wrong question. Jesus said, don't be deceived. Evil does not dictate when Jesus comes. Many people have come, and many evil people will come, uh, and they will do evil things. The question is, 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 uh, the question is, is this attack the sign of the end times? Is not the right question. The right question is, has the gospel been preached to the ends of the, of the earth, at least as God decides? Because that's when Jesus will come, will come again. But all that brings us back to Israel then. Well, you know, if, if, if Israel still rejects her Messiah, and if this attack from Hamas is not the trigger of end times, well then why as a nation and why as, as Christians should we continue to support Israel? Why should we? Well, let's talk about that. Why should America as a country and Christians as individuals support Israel? Well, there are political reasons and there are biblical reasons why we ought to support Israel. So we'll start with the political reasons and we'll save the biblical reasons for next. So first, the political reasons. First, we should support Israel because we support good over evil. What Hamas did to go into Israel and kill and do unspeakable things uh, to, to so many people was pure evil. That was the work of Satan, uh, working through people that he had targeted, his minions through whom uh, these religious fanatics do unspeakable uh, acts of evil. And so we have to condemn evil. We have to stand with Israel. Now, Hamas has killed some 1,400 hostages now, and it's, it's kidnapped others, and it's killed hostages. And now you see in the news that they are using these hostages to negotiate a ceasefire and to have uh, people far worse than these innocent people who have been kidnapped. Now we're having to, to, the, the Israelis are having to turn over uh, people who are terrorists in exchange for these innocent uh, Israelis who have been taken. And so now they want to negotiate a ceasefire after all the damage that they have done. And wherever ever evil exists, we as Christians and as Americans should stand against it. So that's the first reason. We support good over evil. Secondly, Israel is our strongest ally in the Middle East. Militarily, economically, technologically, Israel regularly provides us with intelligence that we use to combat these Islamist extremists who want to kill us. Let's remember, they don't want only to kill Israel, they want to kill us, right? Remember 9-11? Remember 9-11? They want to kill us too. They see Israel as the little Satan, they see us as the great Satan. We are the ones that are the ultimate target. And so the Middle East has been a place of constant upheaval and violence, and they threaten not only Israel, but they threaten us, the United States of America. So we have to support God's people who want peace and democracy in that region. So that, those two reasons. And then we have the same values. They value life. We value life. They are a truth-based culture rather than a shame culture. They're the only democracy in the Middle East surrounded by non-democratic nations. So for these political reasons, we ought to support Israel. But more importantly, there are biblical reasons we should support Israel. God said to, Israel, to Abraham, go from your country your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. 
I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So biblically, we support Israel because God has chosen Israel, and he has promised to bless Israel and bless those who bless the nation of Israel. Now, right now, I'm sure you're following in the news, our country is walking a very fine line, right? We say we support Israel, and yet we're sending money to Israel's enemies, including Iran. And we're pressuring Israel to enter into a ceasefire because we don't want the conflict to escalate into a global conflict, which I certainly understand. Nobody wants that. But we need to find ourselves on the right side of this conflict. We need to find ourselves supporting Israel if we're going to receive God's blessing. Because God blesses those who bless Israel. He curses those who curse Israel. And he's not done with Israel. So God has promised to bless those who bless Israel. And secondly, remember that Israel is the root. And we are the branches. Israel's the root. We are the branches. Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. I say again, they did not stumble as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So Israel has stumbled over the stumbling block, right? Jesus said, I am the chief cornerstone whom the builders rejected. We studied that a few weeks ago in Mark. But they did not stumble so as to fall. God's present blessing of the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous. You see that in verse 11? That is his plan. So they will return to God. And when Israel does return to God, if our blessing is great as Gentiles, as the grafted in branches, how much greater will the blessing be to the original olive tree, Israel, God's chosen people? And how great a debt we owe as a result of benefiting from the promises that God first made to Israel. So our response ought to be to love and support Israel. Psalm 122.6 says that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Prayer is always our best way to support Israel. So to summarize, why has God not allowed the Jews to live peacefully in the land? Well, it's because they continue to reject their Messiah. God never revoked their deed to the land, but their right to occupy the land is conditioned on their obedience. So that's why God has not allowed Israel to live peacefully in the land. Second, is the continuous conflict in the Middle East a sign that God has abandoned Israel? Absolutely not. God made a covenant with Israel that he must fulfill. God's very character is at stake. God is truth. What happens if God is not telling the truth? Well, his character is worthless, and then he's no longer God. So God is truth, and his promises can be trusted. He will fulfill his plan for Israel when the full number of Gentiles has come in and the gospel has been preached to the whole world by God's standards. And third, why do we support Israel? Because we stand for good over evil and because God blesses those who bless Israel. Will there be peace in Israel? Will there be peace in Jerusalem? Well, sooner or later, uh, this conflict with Hamas, this current war, will end. But for there ever to be final, lasting peace in Israel, it's going to take the gospel to be preached to the whole world, and it's going to take Jesus Christ to come again. Only Jesus can bring peace to a troubled world. And that's a good thing to remember as next week we turn our eyes toward Christmas and our Savior's birth. Let's close with a couple quick applications. The first one is to do your part to bring the gospel to the whole world. 
Do you want Jesus to come again? Do you want him to come again? If you do, our part is to be sure the gospel is preached to the whole earth. And if that is the case, we have work to do, brothers and sisters. We have work to do. So let's do whatever we can to help the gospel reach the whole world. And that includes reaching unbelieving friends, unbelieving family. You don't know who your friends and family know. They may know Jews who will take the gospel back to Israel. Who knows what God will do when we do our part to preach the word to our unbelieving friends, family, co-workers, neighbors. So do your part to bring the gospel to the whole world. Second, let your Jewish friends and acquaintances know that you support Israel. You may not know this, but, but Jews don't think Christians love them. In fact, Jews think Christians hate them. And I'll tell you why. It's because they think that we think that they killed our Savior and we have not forgiven, that for, for, uh, forgiven them for that. And that's the rise in anti-Semitism that we're seeing around the world. Molly has a Jewish friend uh, who she's been friends with since grammar school. Uh, and she's been very surprised that Molly and I support Israel in this conflict. She thinks that Christians hate Jews because she grew up in a town where people accused her of killing the Savior. That's how they talked to this, this young lady. And so, you know, Molly has had to explain to her that Christians love Jews because Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jews and salvation is of the Jews. And she's been trying to share the gospel uh, with her Jewish friend uh, because our Jewish friends and acquaintances don't know that we support them. Like I said, they think we hate them. And Molly has tried to share that, look, yes, the Jews had a hand in killing Jesus, but so did the Romans, and so did uh, the, the, the others in, in the region. And even God had a hand in killing Jesus, right? It was God's plan that Jesus should suffer and die for our sins. So the Jews, though responsible in a physical sense, this was God's plan, and we are also responsible. Now, what Molly's been saying is that, or, or hoping with, with her friend is that many people respond to the gospel in times of crisis. And for Israel, people living there now, and even uh, Jews living in America, this is a time of crisis. Many of them on college campuses and in cities are afraid to go out, fearing that they're going to be attacked for what they believe. And so God uses crises to draw people to himself. And that may be why God is allowing this present crisis in the Middle East to draw people to himself. So let your Jewish friends and acquaintances, if you have them, know that you support Israel. And finally, Pray that Israel will receive its Messiah. <clears throat> we, of course, pray for God to save physical lives. But even more important, we pray for God to save souls. Pray for all unbelievers in Israel. Uh, pray for everyone throughout the world to receive Jesus as Savior. Uh, even pray for Hamas to come to repentance. That may seem absolutely impossible to you and to me, right? It does, when you think about how extreme these Islamist jihadists are. That seems impossible. But nothing is impossible for God. He can turn the blackest heart from blackness to himself. And I know that personally because he did that for me. And many of you have a similar testimony. He can do it for Israel and he can do it for Hamas. So let's pray that he does. All right, let's go to the Lord. Lord, we have barely scratched the surface of, of what this conflict is about and all the nuances of, of uh, what you may be trying to accomplish through it and uh, the timing of how you may accomplish all of these things. But the big picture is clear, Lord. Uh, we know that you win, and we know that you win in your own timing. 
and you know that uh, we know that you will return all Israel to yourself and they will believe the gospel. As for when these things happen, Lord, uh, we do the best we can from the Bible, uh, but we hold these things loosely and we trust, Lord, that in your perfect timing, all these things will come to pass. We lift up the Jewish people to you, Lord. Uh, we lift up any uh, Palestinians who, who have not supported Hamas, uh, Lord, uh, and we pray for all of their salvation, Hamas, the Palestinians, the Israelis, all of them, Lord, because there will be no peace in the Middle East until the day comes uh, when they believe their Messiah that came and died for their sins. And we pray that that would happen even today, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.